Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 237, America's Jewish Women. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And last week, we concluded our series on Jews of color, on organizations created by and for Jews of color, as well as other organizations that are working for social justice. There's a concept in Talmud study where when you finish a book of Talmud, you say at the end, Hadran Allah, which means we will return to you. And this podcast works in a very similar way. We have a series on a particular topic. It's often a topic we've looked at in interviews before, and it's one that we'll return to again. The topic of Jews of color is no doubt one of them. Just a few days ago, there was yet another shooting of an unarmed African-American man, this time in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And I know that I speak for all of our listeners to say that we are just absolutely horrified by it. And our hearts break for Jacob Blake and his family and for all the African-Americans that we love all over America and in particular in the Jewish community. These are hard times and this is an important topic and we will return to it. It's also a larger theme of Judaism Unbound. It has been from the beginning to look at groups that have not played a central role, have usually not been allowed to play a central role in the development of Judaism over most of its history and thinking about, as we think about in this podcast, how the Jewish future might be very different from the Jewish past, part of that is all about who is going to be writing that Jewish future. And so today we turn to another topic that we've explored a little in the past and that we will explore a lot in the future, and we open a series on looking at Jewish women, and actually it turns out that this is a really good timing for it, because just a few days ago, we celebrated the century, 100 years since the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. And of course, that right was not exercised, was not able to be exercised by many American women, for example, women of color, who were stopped from voting, not because they were women, but because they were people of color. So the job of the 19th Amendment was imperfect then, and it's imperfect now. But now there's also a woman running for vice president. And so it seems like a particularly interesting time to really bring this conversation to the fore. And there's no doubt that the future of Judaism, where we're going, is going to be extremely highly influenced by the work that Jewish women do. And we are excited as part of this series to be able to look both at history and also to talk with some of the Jewish women who are doing some of the most exciting work today around this basic question of when Jewish women take charge, how might Judaism look very different than it has in the past? And so we're excited to launch this series today with a guest who really is the right guest to get us started. Pamela Nadell is the author of America's Jewish Women, a history from colonial times to today, which recently came out in paperback. Last year, when it came out in hardcover, it won the National Jewish Book Award as the Everett Family Foundation Jewish Book of the Year. Pamela Nadell holds the Patrick Clendenin Chair in Women's and Gender History at American University, where she also directs the Jewish Studies program. She is a recipient of American University's highest award, Scholar Teacher of the Year, and I'm sure you'll agree with us that she deserves it from this conversation. Pamela Nadell is a past president of the Association for Jewish Studies and is the recipient of the American Jewish Historical Society's Lee Max Friedman Award for Distinguished Service. Pamela Nadell, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I wanted to start with a question about kind of a founder's effect. I was thinking about this as I started to read the first part of your book that's about the sort of early years of America and the role of Jewish women in those early years. And it, it made me think of something that I realized when I was reading Jonathan Sarna's book, American Judaism, a number of years ago. And it pointed out that 
for the first 150 years or so of America, there was literally no rabbi in America. And, you know, that got me thinking about like, well, what kind of society is founded by, you know, in a world where 150 years, there's there's no rabbi there. And, and how does that affect, you know, 200 years later, that society? So I was wondering a similar question about American Jewish women, as you saw it. I mean, one thing that struck me was this point that you make sort of almost casually that, because in Protestant worship in America, women were basically expected to be at church, that there was this phenomenon in the early days of America where Jewish women came to synagogue in a way that they really didn't used to come in, that there might have been a women's section, but mostly the women stayed home, whereas in America, they were there. And I, it got me wondering, you know, was that was that something that, you know, has this like butterfly effect where over time that early sense that women should be in the synagogue, you know, ends up causing results down the road that are kind of unexpected. So uh, whether it's that or something else, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about sort of the early years of American Jewish women and, and especially how some of those things may have had lasting effects. What is so exciting about American Jewish history and American Jewish women's history is that American Jews craft their own path there's not a single rabbi living in the United States until 1840 when Rabbi Abraham Rice comes to Baltimore. And the result is, is that American Jews use the freedoms of America and American Jewish women use the freedoms of America to chart their own path. I can give you a couple of examples. One is a woman that I, I open the preface with, Grace Nathan, Grace Mendes Sicius Nathan, who was a typical daughter, sister, wife, mother, grandmother, widow, but she was also, in her own way, strikingly a religious maverick. Here is a traditional Jewish woman who at the end of her life leaves an ethical will for her only son and tells him, at my death, keep your beard for only seven days. We know that under Jewish tradition, Jewish men typically do not shave for a minimum of 30 days following the death of a parent. She's changing Judaism. And I think we see that throughout American Jewish history, the way in which Jewish women, because they don't have a hierarchical authority over them, all the way down until our contemporary moment, have inserted themselves into Jewish tradition. America's Jewish women because they didn't have established organizations sitting underneath them, were able to craft new ways of being Jewish in public spaces in America. And as you mentioned earlier, part of the reason they did that is because they were watching what their Christian neighbors were doing. So you do find uh, all of these ladies, Hebrew benevolent societies and Deborah societies emerging in the 19th century. And then of course, when you get later on, end of the 19th century, and especially the first decades of the 20th century, you get these powerhouse Jewish women's organizations that emerge, like National Council of Jewish Women or Hadassah. And those are very much, I think, American phenomena. Abraham Rice, you mentioned, um, there's a beautiful moment. There's two moments I want to bring up from early in your book. One is that there's this moment where Abraham Rice, this first rabbi, he, he makes a very rabbinic move, which is he thinks he knows what people should be doing Jewishly. And he says, hey, I forget who he's talking to, but hey, can you try to get women to go to the mikvah, the ritual bath where women go to purify themselves, not just women, but predominantly women go to purify themselves. And uh, you, you didn't have the response, but you said something to the effect of like, it's unlikely the answer to that was yes. It's uh, it's unlikely that something was going to happen where all the women were going to go to the mikvah. Um, and A, that helps us to 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 stop doing something we often do with history, which is idealize the past and think, that, oh, yeah, Judaism, everybody used to do all the things prescribed by the legal texts. Everybody went to the mikvah. And now we don't anymore. Like, no, even a few hundred years ago, it's clear that lots of people were not going to the mikvah, even though they were told to. Um, so that I thought was really interesting in what it sort of elucidates between the rabbi's vision of what women should be doing and what women themselves might have been doing. And then the other thing I wanted to bring up is maybe controversial or maybe this is a weird direction to go, but the, the story of Rachel Lazarus. So that Lazarus name might be familiar to people because of 
Emma Lazarus, who is prominent in your book and who is prominent in American, I don't know, iconography on the, on the, the, the poem on the Statue of Liberty. But Rachel Lazarus comes up early in your book, and she's somebody who you mention in the early 1800s, she leads Yom Kippur services. This is a woman who leads Yom Kippur services in North Carolina for a small community. Rachel Lazarus steps up, and this is not leading, you know, a random Shabbat service. This is leading Yom Kippur services, which is complicated. Um, and she, who knows whether she did it by the book, whether she changed it, who knows? But like, she took a, a big, complicated task on, and then it doesn't end there. We could sort of look at that and feel happy about ourselves. But what happens next is she grows deeply dissatisfied with American Judaism. And she spends a lot of time in church on Sundays because they're sort of a larger community and her family seems to go there. And late in life, she grows so connected to Christianity and so dissatisfied with Judaism that on her deathbed, she is baptized. So I want to talk about that not as like, oh my gosh, she's the worst. Like I actually want to talk about what what that can teach us um, and and how we can learn from that in terms of the fact of dissatisfaction with Jewish institutions. This is somebody who at an early stage of life demonstrated the potential to lead a Yom Kippur service. Um, and in other elements of her life, I've learned about her. She's in touch with authors, to, to asking them to to do a better job of representing Jews in their books. She's deeply invested in the Jewish project. And a set of things happen that make her grow extremely disillusioned with the institutional forms of that. So I'd love to reflect on that. And to the extent that it is or isn't related, that rabbinic anecdote about how rabbis think they know what Judaism should look like in a way that maybe differs from the people, in quotes. What I love about your question is that if we start with mikvaot or mikvah, the plural from mikvah, the ritual bath that Jewish women um, immerse in at the end of their monthly cycle so that they can ha- resume sexual relations with their husbands. So we go with, start with this very powerful Jewish tradition, a, a commandment incumbent upon married Jewish women. And then you, your, your question takes us all the way to a Jewish woman who abandons Judaism, who becomes an apostate. You actually, in your question, have captured the entire breadth of the religious American Jewish experience, because we have everything from traditional observance all the way to apostasy. And that is, ex- that is exactly what we see when we write the history of American Judaism. And it is what we see in, this, in, in my book when I talk about the history of America's Jewish women. So we have early debates in the American Jewish community in the colonial era, in the early Republic era, Abraham Rice, the rabbi, when he comes to America, he, he thinks that he's going to be able to get American Jews to behave according to how he views Jewish tradition. So it's not only that he, he writes that he, he wonders, you know, can we get women to start going to the mikvah? He actually also thinks that he tries to get the members of his congregation to stop having mixed dancing. And then when we look at the example of Rachel Mordecai Lazarus, Rachel Mordecai Lazarus was a fascinating woman. She emerges first, as you as you mentioned in her letters, to a very prominent Anglo-Irish writer named Maria Edgeworth. And Maria Edgeworth happens to have published a novel with a despicable anti-Semitic Jewish character whose name is Mordecai. So it's the same family name that Rachel Mordecai Lazarus has. And she writes to her and she pleads with her that not to besmirch an entire people. Um, Maria Edgeworth's response is actually to publish another novel where she defends the Jewish people because she has a female character in that novel that is modeled on her new friend, her letter friend, Rachel Mordecai, and in fact, in that novel, at the end of the novel, it's discovered that, of course, she has Christian descent. So we're seeing all these themes about anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism woven into her life very early on. And then, of course, she marries Aaron Lazarus. They move to a small town in North Carolina. And the reason she leads Yom Kippur services is because it's for her family. It's not like she's leading a synagogue. They're, they are virtually the only Jewish family, maybe the only Jewish family in that town. So she's living in a world 
where all of her interactions are with her Christian neighbors. And they have been for a long time trying to draw her to Christianity. And there's one point earlier before her deathbed where she says to her, her husband that she wants to embrace Jesus. And he threatens if she does that, he'll take her children away from her. So she doesn't convert until her deathbed. But it gives us this broad range, and they're just two examples of Judaism as it is lived out by America's Jewish women. Everything from traditional observance all the way down to apostasy. There was a scene towards the middle of your book where I don't remember who it was, but there's a woman who's lighting the Shabbat candles. And at a certain point, she blows them out and she says, you know, I never believed in that. And my, I think she says something like, you know, my mother's very far away. She's not going to see me. And uh, let's just stop doing that. And I think you say never, she never did it again. <laughs> and that's something that I'm interested in, in exploring, both in, in the sense of kind of what was happening in American Judaism? I mean, we, we think about American Judaism. When we look today at American Judaism, it's it's actually quite different from Judaism anywhere else in the world. Now it's kind of bled into other Judaisms, and so sometimes you can't quite see it. But but and and I think that part of that was really right. There was uh, America was very far away. That you know, mom and dad weren't around to oversee. And and so you know, I guess my question is in part. What do you see as some of the most significant reasons that American Judaism took this particular course that it took? And, and then also in particular, can you talk a little bit about, as you see it, the, the ways in which women in particular defined the course that American Judaism would take? What, what is it that women in particular, how did they change the course of American Judaism? The first thing that I would say is that Judaism, wherever it evolves, Judaism evolves, changes, and adapts in dialogue with the majority society. So the the example that we talked about earlier about women that you had mentioned about women going to synagogue in, in America because their Christian neighbors went to church. The majority society influences American Jewish behavior for men and for women. America promised to Americans, as we know, not to all Americans, but a promise to Americans that it was a nation founded on freedom. And it was those freedoms and those liberties that enabled American Jews to make changes to Judaism, to adapt Judaism. So the, you know, the great example in the 19th century is the discarding of the skull cap of the yarmulke, of the men covering their heads. And for Jewish women, because Judaism is so centered in the home. You know, we tend to talk a lot about synagogues, but really Judaism is a religion based in a public space of a synagogue, but also powerfully based in the home. Jewish women have tremendous influence over shaping Judaism. And I liked your example. Um, It comes from Kate Simon's Bronx Primitive of her mother, stopping lighting Sabbath candles. But the other part of that story is that Kate Simon remembers, Kate Simon was a very important memoirist and travel writer. And in her memoir, she talks about every Friday, her mother polished the furniture with lemon oil and made gefilte fish. And the house smelled of lemon oil and gefilte fish. And even after her mother stops lighting Sabbath candles, she doesn't stop the traditions of polishing the furniture and making the fish. And so Jewish women have a freedom in America to shape how they view Judaism in the home. That is really their domain in terms of shaping Judaism and leading Judaism. So I'm I'm really struck by how Jewish women transform American Judaism. I want to spend some time, I want to make sure we spend some time talking about what it means. It's like a meta conversation, what it means to specifically do Jewish history through the prism of women's experiences. And I want to reflect a little bit on what I thought history was and wasn't. And I flash back to growing up and taking history classes. And I I think if you had asked me if the textbooks I was reading, if the classes I was taking were sexist, I think I would have been confused. Like, I wouldn't have said yes, but I wouldn't have said no. I would have just been like, well, 
the people who did the history, I mean, I'm simplifying to show how I thought of it and how I think many people think of history. Well, the people who were like doing the history were men. So like they were the ones in the wars. They were the ones being elected to things. They were the one like the things I thought of as sort of what history talks about, quote unquote, all of this in quotes, all of this is wrong. But like the things I thought were notable in history were things that men did, especially in American history, but in general. And I had this moment in college. My, my very first college class that I set foot in was a class I was super jazzed to take because I thought I was like cheating. Um, it was a class called Sport in American History, which seems like a weird place to go from a feminist angle, but um, it's where we're going to go. I had no idea that sports were like part of history. It was nuts to me. It was like, wait, I can study sports and that's like rigor. That's like a college class. It's not just the wars and the elections. Like I, I can study how this other realm evolved. And what I learned very quickly, we that that entire course was very conscious of how gender, both in history and in sports, has been problematic. Um, and so my first assignment that I ever did was a long form paper on Babe Didrikson Zaharias, who might be the best athlete in American history. Um, I, I get to her because. When we look at her through the prism of how we generally do, whether it's Jewish history or other history, we would in every way miss her. If you were talking about the history of American sports and you wanted to talk about institutions, so Major League Baseball, uh, the National Football League, the National Basketball Association, if you wanted to talk about all the institutions of American sports, you would miss her. Because she was, there, there were no women's institutions. Um, there was a very short-lived women's baseball league. A league of their own is a movie based on But like, in general, there was nothing. And to this day, we haven't treated women's sports anywhere near as highly as we've treated men's sports. But if you look at who is excelling in athletics, Babe Didrikson Zaharias won gold medals. Um, that's one institution, I guess. The Olympics had women involved from the get-go on the modern Olympics. But like, what I'm getting at here is when you switch your lens, your goggles, and you look at history a certain way, all of a sudden, Babe Didrikson Zaharias is not a sideline character. Instead, she becomes, oh my gosh, this woman literally picked up three different sports and was among the best in the world at them. And there's articles about her breaking 200 in bowling in her first try. What happens when we, when we shift our lens on Jewish history in a way that not only allows, permits Jewish women to be at the center, but really upends how we've been taught so that they are the center and men become the, the figures that are, I don't know, foils supporting the women's stories as opposed to the inverse. You've just given this extraordinary example of how the turn to social history changed our understanding of the past. It brought sports in, it brought women in, it brought Jews in, it brought ethnic minorities in, it brought African-American history into how we write history. And you're right, the, whatever lens we look through, all of a sudden, the traditional past, which is still written about so extensively. If you go in the old days when we were still able to go to a bookstore, if you would scan the shelves of a bookstore, most of the books in the history section would be either about dead white men or about wars in the past. I mean, that's still a major focus of writing for many people. But as social history exploded starting in the 1960s, it let us cast different lenses. And you're right that when you take the lens of gender, and I'm, I'm not looking at masculinity, I am only looking at women, but when you take the lens of gender, all of a sudden, things that were not seen as significant in the past begin to emerge. And I'll give you, I'll go back to Grace Neath and just for a minute, I'll give you um, one comment about her. There was a book published in the 1950s, a book of letters and information about the members of Sherith Israel, the founding congregation of New York City. And the editor of that book wrote when he published a little bit about Grace Nathan, she's only in this book because her husband was a patriot. He fought in the Revolutionary War and her brother was the religious leader of the congregation. Otherwise, basically, she's utterly unimportant. And all of a sudden, when we opened to women's history, we began to ask entirely different questions about how women's lives 
were shaped and changed in the past by their intersections with their communities, their neighbors, their religion, their politics, everything changed. So when you center Jewish women in American Jewish history, as I did in, in this particular book, and I've written other books that you know include women but don't center them in the same way, all of a sudden, different topics emerge as being utterly critical to understand. For example, I mentioned the powerhouse Jewish women's organizations, the legacy organizations that still exist today. My question was, why did they emerge when they emerged? What happened at the end of the 19th century and the early decades of the 20th century that enabled them to emerge? And my answers came from American history. All of a sudden I looked at what had changed in terms of women's lives in America. In 1800, the average white woman in America, I'm not saying all Jews are white, but that's the comparison group here. In 1800, they had seven children. In 1900, they were giving birth to 3.5 children. In 1850, the average white woman in America lived less than 40 years. By 1920, her life expectancy was 57 years. So we see how changes in life expectancy and childbearing and childrearing patterns enabled women, not just Jewish women, but women across America to advance in ways and give back to their communities in ways that was simply impossible before. There's multiple levels that I'm struck in your book, and I'd just love for you to reflect about it a little. Some of it is what we're talking about in terms of we emphasize different things. You know, we might see the importance of different kinds of work and different kinds of activity. And then there's also the the degree to which, uh, in this case, women's uh, contributions in, in areas that we might have thought of as more more uh, prominent already, you know, meaning like large scale organizations that that the role of women has been de-emphasized in history. Right? We don't even recognize that women actually played major roles as social organizers, et cetera. W one thing that struck me uh, in some of the characters that that you write about are, is that there was it seemed like there was a kind of a role in particular for women who never married. Someone like Rebecca Gratz or Henrietta Zold, you know, there was a it was a very interesting a dimension of that and i'm and i'm wondering again like was that typical also for non-jewish women at at these times that there were that this was kind of a character type in america the unmarried woman who was leading a, a social movement of, of some sort and so we had a jewish version of it or was there a particular jewish cast to those kinds of activities you're right that unmarried jewish women jewish women who never married are able to play extraordinary roles in shaping their communities because they don't have the family obligations and responsibilities that might have constrained them. And Rebecca Gratz is a great example, um, a 19th century um, woman who lived in Philadelphia and founded the first Hebrew Sunday School, the first women's organization that was not part of a synagogue, and founded also the first Jewish orphanage in America. Although it's important to remember that when her sister died in childbirth, she raised her sister's children, so she did have family responsibilities. You mentioned Henrietta Zold, the founder of Hadassah, also who spent the last quarter century of her life living in the Jewish community in British Mandate Palestine, and who essentially single-handedly built up a good portion of its social welfare structure doing that. And we do find, and this is also true across other histories, uh, histories of other women's groups, we often find that women who were not constrained by marriage and family roles were able to play kind of outsized roles within their particular communities. So that is something that does happen. And it's a, a, a partly a result of the kind of social structure of American life and of the responsibilities they would have had in the home. I want to go back to something that you mentioned briefly in passing and that was also mentioned, not not quite in passing, but relatively briefly in the book about Rebecca Gratz and this idea of, um, you know, that, that in founding basically the first Hebrew school in America and, and having been founded by a woman, it kind of established this possibility, almost more that's become an expectation that women are the ones or certainly prominent among the ones teaching Judaism to children, 
which was not the case in any time previous in history, for the most part, other than in the home. That 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 religious instruction was the province of men, and I'm and I'm thinking about it because when my grandmother came to America in the uh, in the late 1940s, she and basically all her friends, for, you know, who had come from Eastern Europe via Palestine or Israel, you know, later in in the time period, they all became Hebrew school teachers and. It struck me as a child growing up in the 70s and 80s as entirely unremarkable. And then, you know, when I kind of stumbled across that in your book, I, I felt like, whoa, that was actually a major change. And, and I'm wondering if we can maybe reflect a little bit about the role of Jewish women in Jewish religious and more than religious institutional communal life in America today that that it almost seems like women have taken on more and more roles. And so now, you know, one of the, one of the greatest stories in our, in our family was a, a friend who uh, the, their young daughter grew up in a synagogue that had had a female rabbi. And when she left to take a different position and a male rabbi came to succeed her, she turned to her mother and said, I didn't know a man could be a rabbi. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and, and again, that sort of seems uh, sort of funny and a little unremarkable, but it's actually quite remarkable. And so I'm wondering if you could, Again, go. I, I'm I'm intrigued. And we're trying to go back to this question of you know the butterfly effect and and the idea that certain things that happened, a hundred, two hundred years ago, actually have shaped American Judaism in a way that that makes it quite distinct. And and the things that we just sort of take as normal are actually quite remarkable. When Rebecca Gratz creates the first Hebrew Sunday School, she's modeling it on Christian women, her neighbors, who are teaching Christian children and also trying to lure Jewish children into their Sunday schools. But you're right, she creates a brand new venue for children to learn, for women to become teachers. And it's an idea that within a little more than a decade has spread all the way across the world to Australia. So it is astonishing that she creates a new way for Jewish women to be leaders in their community, albeit leaders of children, um, which is what is accepted for women in the 19th century. And then you're right that we get to this propulsion forward of Jewish women taking on more and more roles in the Jewish community. And you probably know that I wrote another book called Women Who Would Be Rabbis, A History of Women's Ordination, that showed an argument about the question of could women become religious leaders in the synagogue? And it opened in 1889 with an article on the front page of the Jewish Exponent in Philadelphia saying, could not our women be ministers, the code word for rabbis back then. But it's a debate that's still ongoing in certain sectors of Judaism today. But you're also right in terms of Jewish women's public roles in the American Jewish community. I don't know the exact gender breakdown in Jewish communal organizations today, but I am fairly confident that the preponderant majority of women, not in the leadership positions, but in terms of the line worker positions, it's women who are in these positions. Jewish women became a great percentage, a plethora of the Jewish communal workers in the United States. They made their careers there. And I guess you could trace it all the way back to Rebecca Gratz, starting with the Hebrew Sunday School. I wanted to also talk about, on the same thread actually, confirmation. I keep on like jumping to weird spots, but it feels related to me. But um, I have read all sorts of histories of American Jewish stuff that talk about confirmation, that talk about the creation in the 19th century of this idea that maybe it wouldn't just be a bar mitzvah that marks coming of age for young Jews entry into adulthood. Maybe there would be a confirmation ritual and there's different reasons for that. We could go all the way into it. But for this conversation, I think what's important to say is I have read all those different histories and it never really crossed my mind that, oh, bar mitzvah was bar mitzvah. It was guys that were doing it. And confirmation, the very first one, you talk about the very first confirmation in the United States in the 1800s is both boys and girls becoming men and women. To me, that opens up a huge set of conversations about what to do with that. So first, I think to this day, when people talk about confirmation, there's like this squeamishness. It's like, mm, 
that's one of those things where we were influenced by Christians and like as Jews we we don't like talking about that we we what we prefer to think that like we invent everything ourselves um and when and when it comes from Christians especially it's like ooh we're like oh we allowed their dominant culture to affect us and by the way I grew up in a reformed congregation where it was very much the case that there were the, there were the pictures of the confirmation classes on the wall but I think we were taught as we prepared for our bar mitzvah like yeah, that was one scene is like really important and we're kind of sh- we, like, we want you to think of the bar mitzvah as important now. Like this confirmation thing, it, it like shows some negative sides of our past where we were really into being influenced by Christian. And that, like, I want to back out for a second and, and have a conversation I've never thought of before, which is like, are there ways in which confirmation could have been or could still be a, a way to... I don't know. I don't know whether the word is feminized. I don't know what, like, are, are there ways in which this is a liberationist tactic? Not that it was meant that way, right? Like, I don't think that the people doing this were primarily motivated to, like, empower women. But, like, are there other examples of phenomena like that, that maybe, you know, ritual changes to Judaism or um, social dynamics? I don't know. Like, things that have unfolded that we talk about so much, but we don't notice the huge gender implications there. The fact that like, oh, we have a development modality in Judaism that started as both boys and girls doing it, as opposed to one that we had to sort of reconfigure to fit in women and now to to fit in non-binary folks through B-Mitzvah. Like, what, what would that open up if we said, oh, wow, that actually, like, we should be creating more and more mechanisms that start from an egalitarian place and don't have to be reconfigured to fit one. You're right that confirmation, when it evolves, evolves in part, not only because there's the perception that boys at the age of 13 are too young really to stand up and avow that they want to be part of the Jewish community, so it does come from the Christians, but it's also when it starts, and it starts first in Germany, there is a very clear sense that it's, although they would never have used the word sexist, but it's sexist that Judaism doesn't have a way for women also to express that they have become adult members of their communities. So confirmation from its inception was meant to bring women in and give them more education so that they would know very much back then how to be good Jewish wives and mothers. It wasn't seen as something that was was done in terms of changing the world. But then I love the way you mentioned your synagogue and the photos that are hanging on the wall. If you go to a synagogue and you look at those photos, increasingly they became photos of the rabbi and a handful of young women. It's rare, it was a rare, uh, an occasional male um, face would crop up. And that happened in reform synagogues. In, in some synagogues, they did away with bar mitzvah entirely, and young boys weren't staying on for confirmation. It was only girls. In other synagogues, it actually became, before bat mitzvah became so widespread, it became a way for women to, to have their own kind of coming of age ceremony. And one of my favorite photos that I include in the book is from the East Midwood Jewish Community Center. It's a confirmation class. The rabbi is sitting in the middle. He is flanked by a number of women, young women who are sitting in white robes. And the woman sitting right next to him is Ruth Bader, later Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I like to say this is at her confirmation, not at her confirmation hearings. So we do (laughs) see how important it is um, to have this opportunity for education and for learning. But I love your, love your idea about what happens when you think about reinventing Judaism and you think about it from the get-go, reinventing something that would be completely egalitarian. And that seems to me a question that points us towards the future because what we, what we really saw in the last quarter of the 20th century and down until today is we saw... Jewish organizations adapting to include women in places that they had not been included before. And the emergence, for example, of the bat mitzvah um, as becoming increasingly ubiquitous ceremony was part of that. But we haven't seen necessarily the kind of visioning of something brand new that would then be egalitarian from the beginning. Talking about Ruth Bader is a good uh, transition to what I've been thinking about a, a little bit. I mean, uh, so, you know, which is really, I guess, the bridge between 
what we've been talking about a lot of these kind of earlier years and, and where we are now. Uh, it strikes me that two out of the four women who have ever been Supreme Court justices have been Jewish women uh, and currently are Jewish women, Elena Kagan and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And um, I don't know, I always think about Elena Kagan's confirmation hearing where Lindsey Graham asks her where she was on a particular Christmas Eve. And she says, you know, I'm not sure, but I probably was at a Chinese restaurant with the rest of my fellow Jews. And uh, it's an interesting moment, right? Because it's kind of a um, a very public Jewish moment. And yet the the Jewish activity that is being described is not at all, like you were saying early on in our conversation today, it's not at all going on in the synagogue. You know, it's actually a very particular American form of Jewish activity that is, you know, just fascinating that we've talked about on the show before. But I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the the time in between, you know, basically the the feminist movements of the of the 60s, 70s, you know, et cetera. And, and you know, where were Jewish women in all that? What should we be thinking about in terms of those eras? What's so stunning about the second wave of American feminism is the number of Jewish women who are in the forefront of its leadership. It's really really striking. Um, for those who might have watched Mrs. America recently, we see Phyllis Schlafly on the one hand fighting against the ERA, but the women who are fighting for the ERA are Betty Friedan, author of The Feminine Mystique, Bella Abzug, Congresswoman, and Gloria Steinem, who has often publicly um, affiliated as a Jew through uh, her father. And that that really jumps out. It's really outstanding. And the issue is to explain why. Why are Jewish women so much in the forefront of that leadership? And I think there are a couple of answers. The first thing, and this goes almost back to our um, conversation about Rebecca Gratz, there's a very, very long history of Jewish women's involvement with education. That it's not just that they become Hebrew school teachers in the 1920s in New York City. They are the majority of the public school teachers. And Jewish women, we know for more than a century, are disproportionately well-educated when compared to other white American women. Again, very careful to say that's the comparison group, not that all Jews are white. And it, when we look at the Pew study from 2013, the 2020 study should be coming out pretty soon. We look at the 2013 Pew study, we see that Jewish women have twice the number of advanced degrees when compared to other white American women. This is astonishing. As a college professor, I like to think that going to college matters, that in college you learn skills, you acquire skills, how to read, how to think, how to speak. So you acquired the skills that you needed to emerge as a leader in various organizations. Um, but then there's also the factor of a kind of double sense of oppression that Jews experienced in America that also sensitized them to, be, um, to how women were oppressed. Betty Friedan has written explicitly about this, that her oppression as a Jew, which she's realized how she experienced anti-Semitism, sensitized her to her oppression as a woman. And then there's also those who felt the oppression from within Judaism. Um, uh, the, fam the feminist um, editor of Ms. Letty Cotton Pogrebin has written very publicly about when her mother died and she was a teenager, she wasn't counted in the minyan to say Kaddish, the memorial prayer for the dead. And so it's very important to understand what enabled Jewish women and what propelled Jewish women into leadership roles in the feminist movement. I'm not saying Jewish women were more involved in feminism than American women, but they were disproportionately represented in its leadership. So I'm curious if before we go, you can take us a little bit into the ways that America's Jewish women maybe draws on previous work that you've created, or maybe it's sort of its own new project. I'm curious how this fits in with the evolution of your work more broadly. My first book was on conservative Judaism. And there are about two women that appear in that book. And when I wrote it and got the contract for it, I said, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to get tenure and then I'm going to write what I want, which is I'm going to write about women. And afterwards I did. But it, it takes, it, it's a process. And because we've lived through it, it feels slow on the one hand. 
On the other hand, as a historian, for me, it doesn't feel so slow. It's actually been really, I've seen rapid, rapid change in the past several decades. What you just said strikes me as as so interesting that you had a first get tenure and then you could write about women. <laughs> it It makes me wonder about what's going on today. I mean, if you're able as a historian to reflect on the present moment, but I mean, what do you, what do you think is, is going on today, both in, that, that will be written about in, in history, both in terms of where there are still ways in which women are not actually fully able to realize their own efforts to lead or to do whatever they're trying to do? And, and where are, as you see them, the really remarkable things going on today that will reverberate through history? As we know, there's still a huge gender gap in everything in terms of um, economic parity, in terms of the kind of unpaid labor that women do in the home. There's huge disparity in terms of unpaid labor between what men in the home do and what women in the home do. So there is a lot that remains to change. What's really exciting is to see places where what we once thought was a glass ceiling that could never be shattered has recently been shattered, and that is the appointment of Shirley Rubin Schwartz as chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary. And to see her in the line that goes from Solomon Schechter through Louis Finkelstein through um, Gerson Cohn and Arnold Eisen, that is really very, very exciting, and what that, what that will mean for the seminary. So we have seen some places where there has been some push through women moving into these higher, Jewish women moving into these positions of higher leadership. But a lot remains to be done. And I know that there are organizations in the Jewish community, or organizations in American life that continue to work on, work on these issues. But that's going to be the agenda for the next 50 or 100 years, I would imagine. I am always intrigued by the names of things, by titles of books, by names of organizations, and by by often the super thoughtful reasoning behind those that we don't always hear. So this title is America's Jewish Women. There are lots of similar kinds of titles that could have been chosen and that others have chosen to talk about Jewish women in America. You could have said something like that. You could have said Jewish American women. You could have said American Jewish women with hyphens. You could have done women in American Judaism. You could, like. There's a lot of different formulations that you could have come up with. I'm struck by America's Jewish women because, and so I'll say what I get from it and then you can tell me if it's what you intended or something else. What, what I hear from it is the implicit statement that you say precisely in your intro and that you emphasize over and over again, which is that this isn't about women doing synagogue things, women leading Jewish communal organizations. This is about Jewish women. This is about America's Jewish women. Um, some of those Ameri some of those Jewish women were involved in various Jewish institutional things. Some of them religious, some of them social, some of them ethnic, whatever. Um, and others weren't. And you have a great line in in your intro about how like for some Judaism was like an occasional distraction, and for others they might not be thinking about it at all. And they're still part of the story with this title. If the title were women in American Judaism, it'd be more murky, like, oh, well, how are we defining Judaism? Then are the people who like aren't practicing what we deem to be Judaism, are they still part of the story? Like, you define it in a different way. So I'm curious, is that what you were getting at with the title? And are there other layers of why you chose, or, or the publisher chose, I don't know. Um, are there other reasons that this word choice appears on the on the front and center of your cover? First of all, I will say it was my title. My publisher ran with it, which I'm really pleased. Secondly, I should confess that it was modeled on a, a very important book by the New York Times journalist, um, Gail Collins, who wrote a book called America's Women. And that book was capacious enough to include all sorts of facets of women's lives. And Lex, you, you got it. I, I, I am not writing only about Judaism. I, because for so many of America's Jewish women, Judaism might have been a part of their lives, but might not have been a part of their lives. And I wanted to get at the women who launched the kosher meat boycott. I wanted to get at those for whom leftist politics were critical to how they saw themselves as Jews and as Americans. I wanted to get at those who became 
lawyers and teachers. I, I, wanted the, I wanted the breadth of the experience of Jewish women in America and any other title didn't work to get at that. It, it, Judaism was definitely too narrow. And to say American Jewish women or Jewish American women would have gotten me into that conversation about, you know, what's the adjective, what's the noun, what's the modifier. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't want to go there with that. And I really do feel that Jewish women in America have a unique story in their history. And it was, by the way, early in the emergence of women's history, many of the first historians who were writing women's history happened to be Jews, but they really didn't necessarily think that Jewish women had a distinctive history in America. So I'm also, in a sense, responding to that historiography, that study of the history in the earlier books that they wrote. This was a very deliberate title on my part. Are there any other pieces of the book you want to bring up? Any other pieces of your work, scholarship in general, that you want to bring up? Um, help us take this home. What's a, what's a core teaching or what's a story or what's in anything that our listeners should be walking away from this episode with? So I'm surprised that you didn't ask me about the American Jewess because there's this term that we talk about at, that Jewish women use, Jewish men use, Christian men and women used, they called Jewish women Jewesses at a certain point in time. And then after around 1940, it becomes pretty sardonic. Some people might even remember um, uh, Gilda Radner doing a skit on Saturday Night Live where she was wearing Jewish jeans. Today, sometimes we hear the word Jewish bantered around, um, both in print and also on, on podcasts. But there was a moment when that was the term that was used to define American Jewish women. And they, it, it, was, it was not sardonic, it was not ironic, and it was such an accepted term that at the end of the 19th century, the first English language Jewish women's magazine was called the American Jewess. So I think it's important to understand naming, since we were talking about titles, naming is very important. It does make a very powerful statement. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. This has been absolutely fantastic. Everybody should go and get this book, America's Jewish Women. It's on all the sites with books. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Great questions. This was fun. Thank you again. And thanks to all of you out there listening. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to close this episode out in the same way that we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. Third, you can go to our Twitter feed, which is at Judaism Unbound. You can also check out our Instagram, which is also at Judaism Unbound. And last but not least, email us. We love it when you email us, dan at JudaismUnbound.com or lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we'd like to make is that we really deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to set aside and send our way. And you can do that on a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift at JudaismUnbound.com slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.